Welcome. You are listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. Shabbat Shalom. I like that kid. When it came to ensuring Jewish continuity, our founding forefather Abraham left very little to chance. The passing of his beloved life partner, Sarah, Abraham no doubt facing the prospect of his own mortality made it his mission to ensure that the covenant he established with God would extend into the generations to come. His son Isaac, perhaps still traumatized by his near-death experience at the top of Mount Moriah, had yet to put himself out there on J-Swipe to find a spouse. Not that there were many, if any, Jewish options to choose from, so Abraham took matters into his own hands and called on his trusted servant Eliezer to return to the land of his birth, Aram Naharaim, to find a wife for his son. It's worth pausing to appreciate Abraham's tactical choices. Do not choose a daughter of Canaan for my son, he tells his servant. Perhaps Abraham feared that if Isaac married a local girl, his son's Hebrew identity would be swallowed up by his Canaanite in-laws and the culture. Nor, for that matter, was Isaac allowed to accompany Eliezer on this episode of The Bachelor, edition Aram Naraim. Perhaps Abraham feared that if Isaac left home, he would fall in love with a foreign woman and adopt the customs and faith of the land. Truth be told, we're never given privy to what Abraham was thinking. All we know is what he did. He left nothing to chance. He found his son a daughter, they fell in love, they created a Jewish home who produced more Jewish children and then more Jewish children. And to make a long story short, a few thousand years later, here we are today. When it comes to Jewish continuity, Jewish parents today leave a whole lot more to chance than Abraham ever did. Whatever choices we make when our children are in our homes, the schools, camps, synagogues, home life, Israel trips, and otherwise, once they leave the nest, there's far more out of our control than in our control. Go to college, we tell them. Get a liberal arts degree, explore new ideas, experience our multicultural world, fill your life with a diverse set of friends and achieve great things as a secular citizen. Do all these things, we tell them. But when it comes time to bringing home a life partner, please bring home a Jewish one. One need not be a social scientist of any great note to make sense of the outcomes. Between 2005 and 2013, 58% of American Jews married non-Jews. Among the non-Orthodox, Over 70% of those recently married chose a non-Jewish spouse. Remarkable as those statistics may be, the most remarkable in my mind is that according to a 2015 study, over half 
of millennial generation children are themselves the products of intermarriage. In other words, the days when one generation can hold over their in-marriage choices over the next generation's choice to intermarry are no longer. That train has left the station. For the vast majority of American Jews, interfaith marriage has become the norm, a choice many have taken in America, in our families, and I know in this very room. It is a fact to deny its existence, as one of my colleagues once said, is akin to denying gravity. The choices we have made, the things we've left to chance, are not without consequence. And given that I have no immediate plans, nor I imagine do any of you, to move to Muncie, to make Aliyah to Israel, to insulate ourselves from the hyphenated blessings and challenges of secular culture, we do ourselves a disservice by not talking openly about our lived reality and what, if anything, we plan to do about it. This morning, I want to share my current thinking on the subject of intermarriage, specifically the question of rabbinic officiation at interfaith weddings. Before I begin, let me manage expectations by saying that in the next 12 minutes of your life, there will be no policy changes for me or for Park Avenue Synagogue. I'm just thinking out loud something rabbis get paid to do once a week. For those who don't follow these conversations, you should know that as a conservative rabbi, neither I nor my colleagues may officiate at interfaith weddings, a standard of practice which, if breached, will result in our expulsion from the union of conservative rabbis, something called the Rabbinical Assembly. Last week, I went to the Rabbinical Assembly Conference in St. Louis, and as with most conferences, the action was not in the plenary sections or the breakout workshops, but in the cups of coffee or scotch that were happening between the sessions. I sat down with different factions of my colleagues who were quietly discussing the issue of interfaith officiation. Some colleagues pulled me aside and said, Elliot, it's not that complicated. We are rabbis, for goodness sake. We have the chance to bring interfaith couples close to tradition. We either perform intermarriages or it will be the end of the movement. Some colleagues pulled me aside and said just the opposite. Elliot, it's not that complicated. We are rabbis, for goodness sake. Our job is to stand for something, to affirm Jewish law and practice. If we start doing intermarriages, it will be the end of the movement. I was asked to sign on to letters, join committees, mobilize for one side of the other. I did nothing. I just listened, as long as it was my colleague and not me paying for the scotch. <laughs> now, I'm no prophet, but based on my experience last week, I predict that the question of rabbinic officiation at interfaith marriages will come to a head in the conservative movement in the next two or three years. Interesting as denominational politics may be, tangled as the policy implications may present, the question that keeps me up at night right now is not the movement, but me. I actually don't feel the same daily pressure to perform intermarriages as my colleagues do. Given the blessing of serving a Manhattan congregation, would-be walk-in interfaith couples know that I don't do them. 
They have many rabbinic options in Manhattan to choose from, and my Saturday nights are already booked with more weddings than I can handle. Given the range of synagogue choices New York offers, the members of this synagogue, Park Avenue, have made the willed choice to be part of a community that preaches, teaches, and champions certain values, like Shabbat, like Kashrut, like in marriage. I'm under no illusions as to the personal practices of my congregants, but sense that even as you make your choices, you understand that I will tell you to keep kosher, light Shabbat candles, come to synagogue and support Israel. It's a sermon for a whole nother day, but I think you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. <laughs> you understand that in marriage between Jews is both halachically Jewish law and sociologically the greatest predictor of future Jewish identity, and you appreciate that it is a message I champion even if it's a path that members of your own family do not take. I know the bubble in which I live. In the free market of Manhattan synagogue life, there are enough, more than enough people who appreciate the liberally-minded traditionalism of our community, a mindset of the community that fortunately reflects the mindset of its rabbi. But here's the thing. I've been serving this community since 2008. The kids at whose bar and bat mitzvahs I first officiated, the families that grew up with me, those kids are hitting their mid to late 20s right now. Those kids are not kids anymore. They are young adults getting married. And I love those kids. And whether they love me or not, they see me as their connection to tradition. When they, or more often than not, their parents reach out to me to officiate at their weddings, and 70% of them are marrying people not born of the Jewish faith, what am I going to say to them? I imagine it's already happening. I can't be sure, as the saying goes, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, but I would bet that many of these families, knowing the policy is what it is, have already taken their children's weddings elsewhere. It's not the halachic Jewish legal question that keeps me up at night, not the movement question, nor for that matter the institutional question, Park Avenue Synagogue will be just fine. What keeps me up is the pastoral question, the moment when a child of our congregation, one of your children who has been raised as part of the fabric in this community, who has done everything right and has nevertheless fallen in love with a non-Jew and now wants me to be the rabbi standing under the chuppah and bless the home they're establishing. What now, Cosgrove? The question is not years away, it's today. As one PAS parent said to me this week, at whose child's interfaith wedding I declined to officiate rabbi, I appreciate that there's a multi-year process at play, but I have a this-year wedding to plan. I'm deeply aware that we all need to be deeply aware that the cogs and the wheels of change move awfully slowly when it's one's own life unfolding in real time. On more than one occasion, I've shared my rabbinic view and our synagogue policy, but for those who are new or visiting, allow me to share it again. This morning, though, I want to do it not as I would in a boardroom or in the bylaws or a town hall meeting, but as a response 
to that imagined or actual 20-something sitting in my office coming to me to share the news that they are engaged to a non-Jew and asking me if I would officiate at their wedding. I would begin by saying, I want you to know, first and foremost, how deeply happy I am that you have found someone who you love and who loves you in the fullness of your being. It is a rough and tumble world out there, and to have found love and to be loved, that is a rare and precious gift, and I am so, so happy for you. Mazel tov. You say you want to create a Jewish home, to raise Jewish children, and you've asked me about whether I'll officiate, and I know that you know because I spoke to your mother last week what my stance is and what the synagogue policy is. And I want you to know that that policy is not a rejection of you or the love that you share with your fiance. There is nothing less than defective or immoral about interfaith marriage. I know plenty of fabulously Jewishly committed interfaith couples and plenty of not so fabulously committed in-married couples. But I also hope that you understand that just as my respect for you is not in any way diminished for having fallen in love with a non-Jewish partner, I would ask that your respect for me is not diminished in accepting that there are limits as to what I will or won't do as a rabbi. Through the good works of Rabbi Zuckerman and the rest of the clergy team, we offer a program called Pathways, an introduction to Judaism class for some, and for others what I believe to be the most embracing, inclusive, and welcoming conversion program possible within the bounds of Jewish law. As I've said many times, when I join a gym, they don't say get in shape and then join the gym. They say join the gym and we will get you in shape. If your fiance wants to be Jewish, we will make it happen. Conversion to Judaism solves the legal question, but it's far more than that. Conversion is important because it signals the will choice of the partner not born of the Jewish faith to be all in, to be a participant, not a bystander in the Jewish home created, a stakeholder, not an observer in the faith of the Jewish children you're committed to raising. It's why, in case you are wondering, I keep saying that our synagogue needs to double down on our efforts in our Pathways program. In a world divided between reform and orthodox, I think a robust and inclusive approach to conversion is the sweet spot that should define our synagogue and the conservative movement. But I know, because I know, that no matter how welcoming I make the process of conversion, it's not, for all sorts of reasons, an option for everyone. And if you decide that you are such a couple, first and foremost, you should still both take the Pathways class or one like it. Because as human beings, our choices should always be educated ones. We should be informed about what we choose to do and not do. Because even if your fiancé never converts, they should be conversant in the Jewish tradition. And I want you to know that while I will not be under the chuppah as your officiant, both I personally and this synagogue institutionally is committed to helping you create a Jewish home no different than any other family. I am still young. 
I'm willing to grow and to stretch myself as far as I can to meet you where you are. I can think of no better project in these months before you get married than to think of all the ways I can extend to you a welcome embrace before and after the chuppah to offer premarital counseling no different than any other couple to construct new rabbinically and communally sanctioned rituals signaling your intent to create a Jewish home and raise Jewish children, to make sure you're included in all the young couple, young parenting, and other classes, and if you want, separate classes for interfaith couples to discuss the unique journey that is yours. I'm ready to do everything I can to let you know that your synagogue and your rabbi are invested in your Jewish future. This is me trying. I get it. I know. There's a sting. No matter how many yeses I offer, there is still a no tucked in there. A no that you're hearing at a really, really important moment of your life. But I don't read the fact that you are marrying a non-Jew as a rejection of Judaism. And I would ask that you don't read the fact that I won't officiate at your chuppah as a rejection of you. Life is not about what happens when everything goes as planned. Life is about how we respond to that which we didn't plan on, and this is such a moment. And I need to say one more thing. I need to name something that we have yet to name. Up until this point, this entire conversation has been about me, what I will or won't do, whether I will or won't rend or break policy. But that's a conversation that avoids the most important person in this whole thing, you. How are you signaling to yourself and your fiance that Judaism is something that you take seriously, that you want to be part of your home, your future, and your Jewish life? What are the signals you are giving out in your life, in your love, in your world that say you take yourself seriously as a Jew and you will take your children's Jewish identity seriously? I would have never spoken to you like this when you were 13, but you're an adult now, so I'm going to treat you like one. How is it that the entire question of your Jewish future has somehow become contingent on the question of whether I will or won't officiate at your wedding? I have no magic dust, not for interfaith couples and not for same-faith couples. It's not the rabbi who assures your Jewish future, it's you the decisions you make, whether to create a kosher home, to light Shabbos candles, to be a lifelong learner, to come to synagogue, to be committed to the Jewish state and Jewish people. You are an adult now. It's time to act like one. You have fallen in love with a non-Jew and you say you want to create a Jewish future. I challenge you to find a rabbi more invested in you than I will be. I will meet you where you are, and I will stretch myself and this congregation farther than anyone thought possible. But just do yourself and me the courtesy of not putting the fate of your Jewish future on my shoulders alone. This conversation is not about me. It's about you, and it's time you took agency for your decisions, your Jewish self, and your Jewish future. And if you do, I promise I will be there at your side, and we will walk this journey together. The story of the Jewish people is a story of the fight for Jewish continuity. 
And it's a story whose participants from the very beginning have been both Jews and non-Jews. Lest we forget, the woman who would marry Isaac, Rebecca, was not a Hebrew woman. Will you go with this man, her family asked, sir? I will, Rebecca replied. And on her own free will and volition, the couple, Jew and non-Jew, take ownership of their destiny and commit to building a loving Jewish home. The blessing received that day, Achotenu at Ha'ila O sister, may you be fruitful and prosper, has been a blessing recited at every Jewish wedding ever since. May we, as did they, step up to the calling of the hour, take agency for the choices we make, each one of us, stakeholders in our shared Jewish future. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul.